All right. Hello, that's Sarah. And that's Emily. And this is Light True Crime. <laughs> get it clink, 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 clink. i'm just trying not to look at your lips move through the video so that I, I just say it normally me too i was like i'm just gonna say it i'm not gonna try and vibe it out i do feel like um i feel solidarity with other podcasts that are having to record yeah. remotely like murder squad and um my favorite murder my favorite murder. I'm like, okay, listen, we're all in this together yeah. doing this weirdness. No one expects our podcasts to be perfectly produced because everyone's recording in their closet. Also, I was I was listening to one of our episodes back the other day and like there's there's like a 30 second thing where we like skip because the internet connection is bad. And I was like, oh, that's nice. That's, that's good. Nice. I'm glad. Yeah. Yeah. Such is such is life right now. Such is life. And um, Ryan told me to tell you to stop being so loud. Okay, well, Ryan, <laughs> no, I'm not going to say what I was just going to say. Ryan can F <laughs> off. Um, it's funny, if you look at the, like, little wavelength of our voices, mine's, like, teeny tiny and yours is, like, huge. And Ryan's like, I don't understand. But, like, you guys sound normal. In real life, okay, I was one, I was thinking about that, listening to our last episode. Um, because I'm recording on my laptop. What are you recording on? I have these Apple headphones. So you'd and think I, that I would be louder. Yeah, that's interesting. Are you on a computer or an iPad? I'm on a computer. Huh. All right. But well, I will, I I'm will recording it down. Yeah. I'm recording in the dining room right now, which is where we used to record, but we used to have the fancy microphones. Um so it might be kind of echoey. So I'm afraid to just record on my computer microphone. I wonder too, because like, even I was just listening to an episode of This American Life um, right before this and Ira Glass is like, I'm in my closet and I hear everybody talk about how they're in their closets. Yeah, it's because of the, but my closet is right on Micah's bed. Oh, yeah. His bed and my closet share a wall, so not um, but speaking of but speaking of quarantine and podcasts, this week this week's episode of This American Life is called Stuck. I haven't I haven't finished it yet, but it's it's really good and like really helpful in remembering like oh everyone is going crazy right now and like yeah just I felt even in just the first half of listening to it I was I felt less alone in um, my madness. So mm. um, also, yeah. do you want to talk about what we're drinking? We haven't we we never did that. Yeah. Um, so we don't have a lot to drink. So I was looking at our bar and there's like five different whiskeys because Ryan is obsessed. Um, and tequila, and that's basically all we have. So I was looking up tequila cocktail recipes and literally they're all different variations of margarita, except this one that I found, which is called Dulce de Tequila, which also doesn't make sense because it's not like there's like anything really that sweet in the drink. So it's tequila an orange liqueur and lime. Um, and I put some pineapple juice in mine because 
I was just too much for me. I needed something that wasn't alcohol. Um, yeah. Yeah. So that's absolutely. what we're drinking. It's absolutely delicious. Highly recommend. Yeah. Um, why was I? Mm, no, <laughs> go there differently uh, on a different uh, train of thought. Um, I did mean to say, though, this is Lightweight True Crime, a podcast where two girls share a drink and a story. Yep. I recently learned, and I sent you the the screenshot of this. It's so funny to me, like f- finding out like who randomly in our lives listens to this. Yeah. So <gasps> Malie, one of um, someone uh, we all went to college with, we did orientation together, and she's just like maybe one of the best humans I've ever met in my life. And she just recently graduated medical school. So shout out to Malie. I would let her be my doctor for literally anything. Um, and she just drove across the country and told me she binged our podcast the whole oh my time. Gosh. I was like, it's just random people that I'm like, why do you listen to us talk yeah. shit for 45 minutes? Wait, where did she go to medical school? I don't know. I would have to look at her Instagram to see if it's tagged anywhere. I want to say okay. it was like Eastern, East of us, you know, <laughs> which is the whole country. Oh, oh, okay. Okay. Cause my cousin just graduated from somewhere up in the Pacific Northwest. I don't know. And she has to move to Chicago to do her residency. Oh, wow. Oh, the one that you were going to come see in Washington? Her sister. Her sister. Okay. So yeah, I was going to see her, but. Gotcha. But yeah. Well, you know, here's to ladies. So shout out to Nikki. I don't think she listens. Well, she should. But if you do, congrats. (laughs) So how are you? Oh, it was just Mother's Day. Happy it late was Mother's just Day. Mother's Day. I know. Thank you for the flowers and all the gifts. You guys are so sweet. Anne brought me like she dropped off like a bunch of stuff with the flowers and my favorite gluten-free cookies were in there. And nice. I've already eaten all but two. It's like a whole bag. Hey, you're a mom. You deserve it. It's true. I do. Did you see your mom on Mother's Day? I didn't see her on Mother's Day, but we all did like a, we celebrated Mother's Day last weekend. And then she came out today for like an hour just because she really missed Micah. Oh, that's nice. I know. Yeah. That's really good. I um, picked up brunch and took it out to the farm. Nice. And uh, so took my parents and my friend Danae, who's living with my parents, took them brunch and we had champagne at the house and I picked up orange juice and I just like, the, my most basic white girl instinct in me, like just misses brunch so much. Yeah. And so I immediately got toasted off of mimosas Nice. and fell asleep for a few hours. And, uh, it was, it was pretty lovely. So, oh, That's oh, this great. is what I was going to, this is what I was going to tell you. Cause, and then I was like, wait, save it for yeah, the yeah, yeah. so I got to tell you in a lot of respects, rural America is a great place to be right now. Um, yeah. so I quarantine has aged me a lot mm-hmm. of years. I now read the local newspaper every morning. Oh my gosh. Um, I bought a plant, which I can't help. Yeah. I can't help but think is my biological clock going off. Cause I've literally tick, tick, never, tick, tick. yeah, seriously. I've never thought about a plant. Yeah. Wanting a plant, taking care of but a plant. I think it's just, you're just lonely in your apartment. You're like, I need another living being and I'm not going to get a pet. <laughs> and I'm for sure. He's not going to get a pet. So I bought a plant. I had an appointment with a financial advisor today to talk about my what? retirement. Um, yeah, do you it, know this financial advisor? So she was my parents, like, <laughs> she was my parents' financial advisor for like 
30 years. And I think that I just have a lot of time on my hands. And so I was like thinking about the future. And so it was a very short meeting because there's not a lot to talk about when you don't have any money. Um, but anyway, so all these, I, all these things have aged me a lot, but every day in my local newspaper, it like gives the latest count of confirmed coronavirus cases in our County. Uh And today I gasped because the lead story was how in the state of Oregon, my county, Yamhill County, is applying for phase one of reopening. Nice. And like, I could cry thinking about like in the near-ish future going yeah. to a restaurant. Like, it's still going to be weird. to work. Oh my gosh, seriously. It's still going to be weird. We're still going to have to be like six feet apart from other parties. Like, probably everybody will be masked. But like, just the thought of getting to go out to a restaurant is right. enough to make me cry. Right. Like we went to Yogurtland today because Micah wouldn't nap. And so we were just driving around and we stopped by Yogurtland and they don't let you like serve yourself anymore. And we're like, they don't put enough toppings in. Like all we want is just to be able to scoop all the M&Ms we want. Wait a second. How does that even work? You just like stand. I don't know. I didn't do it. So this is how Ryan described it. You just like stand behind the... A line basically, you can have like one person go in, and then the workers like ask you what flavors you want and put the ice cream in, and then ask you what toppings you want. It's like, makes me sad. Like, do you not remember yogurt places before the self serve ones? (laughs) It's just like that. Well, but I just think of like because all the where you would fill up your cup, like, so the employees have to come out from behind. Like the I, cash register. Yeah, I think they probably have one person doing the yogurt and one person doing the toppings or something. Well, that defeats the whole purpose of a yogurt land experience. It's true, I know, but we don't have any other yogurt places around here and nothing is as good as yogurt land. So Ugh, that's a regular pinkberry right there where they, you know, do it all Ugh. and don't let you do it. No and pinkberries like the healthy stuff too. Yeah. Nobody wants not- that. It's like actual frozen yogurt. I want frozen sugar. That is, I do miss yogurt land a lot from California. I was thinking today, like since my hours got cut and I'm only working till like noon most days, I was like, because the nearest like in and out in Chick-fil-A is like 45 minutes from here. And I was thinking tomorrow when I get done with work, I could drive to one of those places. You should. Like just drive through and sit in my car and eat my meal and listen to a true crime podcast. You really should. That sounds amazing. The closest (laughs) Dairy Queen to us is like um, in that Garden Grove. So it's like, it's like 20 minutes down the freeway from us. And in the summer, sometimes I'll just go there because their Cotton Candy Blizzard is my favorite. That is the thing that I'm close to here. And it is so great. um it's when you come to visit it's legit like a half a mile down the street oh my gosh and I can get in my car and like not stop going like I just like go and then go through the drive-thru and then just turn around and come home oh my gosh that's so nice very dangerous so do they have their cotton candy blizzards in stock yet do you know not the last time I went um I would expect it soon though, but summer doesn't get here as soon as it gets to California. Yeah, but you'd think that like they'd still. That's true. I don't know. Is it, is it franchised? Yeah. Do they get to decide? Yeah, that's a good question. 
Yeah, I haven't been in the last few days because like my in-home ice cream stock has been like really high. Mm. Um, yeah, I have not been missing any meals or extra meals yeah. or desserts for sure. There was a day last week where I was like, okay, I'm going to go on a diet because all of these allergy medications are making me gain weight. And I was like, I'm just going to go on a diet and I really wanted ice cream. So we postmated some ice creams and they brought me the wrong one. And the one that they brought me had like little cookie bits in it. So it had gluten in it. So I couldn't have any. So Ryan has three pints of ice cream in the freezer. Screw him. I know. Ugh, I'm sorry. Have your hives gone away? How are you feeling? Mm, they went away a couple for a couple days and they came back today. Ugh, so they're not as bad as like, what was it like three or four weeks ago? Yeah. When they were like really angry, they come back and like today they were like on my legs and on one of my sides and like a little bit on one of my arms. So it's not like all over my body, but it's still like a big part of my body and it's really itchy and uncomfortable. Yeah. But really once I cut out gluten is when it got significantly better. It didn't all the way go away. So I don't know if that means that it is or isn't gluten. Yeah. I've read that like it takes like six months to get gluten totally out of your system. Yeah. Um so I don't know, we'll see. What a fun time to be figuring yeah. that out. It really is. It's great. It's like the first day that I was like, you know what? I think it might be gluten because everyone was telling me about yeah. their gluten stories. Um, we like had nothing that was gluten-free. So I had like Honey Nut Cheerios and cheese for like three meals before I was like, <laughs> okay, I, I have to go to tr- Trader Joe's. Yeah. Yeah. Ugh, well, I hope that that gets figured out soon and you're yeah. able to go back to normal. Me too. Um, none of this conversation would explain to anyone listening to the, for the first time that this is a true crime podcast. It is. Um, we share stories. We share stories. We drink drinks. And uh, I, bl- I want to share a story. I would love to. I would cool. absolutely love to. I'm going to drink this drink. And when I tell my story, it'll be interesting. Can't wait. Okay. So I first learned about this story. With a series on Hulu that I recently binged. So mm. major credit to the series Killer Unknown on Hulu, which you would love, by the way. Yes. Um, I Also, Crimola.com and True Crime Daily. This is the story of Dina Dean. This sounds super familiar. I feel like I've watched this show. Oh, maybe you have. I, I hadn't. Um, I can never remember the titles of shows especially on Hulu for some reason. So just, just tell it and I'll interrupt you. Yeah. Let me know if you you remember it. So the year was 1998 and 16 year old Dina Dean was an honor student and a member of the marching band at Webster high school in Tulsa, Oklahoma. On June 6th of 98, she had a shift at the local Arby's fast food restaurant. Now, it was a Saturday, and on Saturday nights, she usually met her parents at the local racetrack. I guess it's like what her community did every Saturday night. That's where you could find them. But earlier in the day, she called her mom to say that after she got done at Arby's, she was going to go, she's going to drive to um, the grocery store at the Town West Shopping Center, where her best friend Brandy worked. And that she was this sounds so familiar, but I don't think I watched the show. I think I heard it on a podcast somewhere. 
Oh, totally possible. It's gotten okay. like a good amount of coverage. Yeah, keep going. Um, the show is really good. Yeah. Um, so she's going to the grocery store because Brandy worked there. She was going to hang out with Brandy and then she was going to give Brandy a ride home when Brandy's shift was done. Also, the boy she had been seeing for the last month worked at the grocery store, which, you know, didn't hurt. Yeah. So after work, she goes to the store and hangs out with Brandy. Um, Brandy's still on the clock, right? And at one point, Dina says that she's going to go outside to talk to Michael, her boyfriend. Um, so anyway, she goes up to the parking lot to do that. So Brandy's shift eventually ends. And when she goes outside, she sees Dina's car is in the parking lot. But Dina is nowhere to be found. This is also like pre-cell phone, right? So yeah. Dina, Dina had a pager, but didn't have a cell phone. Um, and Brandy is concerned about, you know, where Dina yeah. is. But she also didn't want to get her in trouble with her parents if, like, Dina had snuck off with a, with Michael or, like, was out somewhere that she wasn't supposed to be. So Brandy is, is pretty worried, but she doesn't call her parents, doesn't call yeah. Dina's so, but Dina's parents are still like expecting her home at some point. So when Dina doesn't get home by midnight, her parents, Larry and Diana are in a full blown panic. They've been paging her and it's not like her to, to go off and to not say something. Um, so finally, as they're trying to figure things out, one of Dina's other friends calls and say that, Hey, Dina's car is in the grocery store parking lot, but like, we don't see Dina anywhere. So Dina's dad, Larry, heads to the shopping center and he finds Dina's car parked exactly where everyone has said it is. Um, it's unlocked. Uh, her, the windows are down um, and her wallet is inside as well as an uneaten sandwich. And so her dad right away is like, something is wrong. Yeah. So he, so immediately the dad calls home and tells Diana, his wife, he's like, you need to call the Tulsa County Sheriff's Department. Like, this is not right. Um, her dad even is, has said, everybody thought she was a runaway, but me, I knew better. Dina wasn't going to run away. Nobody runs away from an uneaten sandwich. Yeah. Who, what kind of monster does that? No. And your wallet. Right. I mean, I could see if she wanted to like run away and like, make and like disappear and make it like not look like she was like running away so she wanted to like start over so she left her wallet but like the sandwich really <laughs> is like that no is one's gonna know that you didn't leave your sandwich just take it you're gonna need it if you're like starting over <laughs> true a very good point so Larry, the dad, begins driving around the shopping center, and he's checking all the dumpsters behind every store. Aww. He's terrified of finding his daughter's remains in one of them, but also, like, determined to look. Yeah. And you might be surprised, like, some people might be surprised being like, wow, that immediately got dark really yeah. fast. Um, but he says, he's quoted as saying, like, I did it because I knew Dina wouldn't have run away, and that yeah. if this situation I was in she had to have been abducted and taken somewhere yeah but by who is obviously the big question so a witness in the parking lot would eventually tell the police that she saw a girl who matched Dina's description fighting with someone that evening in a red pickup truck um oh I'm gonna sneeze sorry (laughs) 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 sorry I felt that coming (laughs) how has that never happened (laughs) 
seriously, I was like, wait, I don't know what to do. How we've done this is like episode 31, and that's never I happened. Oh, oh man, bless you. We're not cutting that out, Ryan. Doesn't We're not cutting it out. It's kind of surprising it hasn't happened when I'm at your house and I'm allergic to your cat. Right. Weird. So anyway, a witness sees Dina, a girl who looks like Dina, fighting with someone in a red pickup truck. So the shopping center, the parking lot, is next to a major freeway. So law enforcement, you know, theorizes that Dina had been kidnapped by someone who had gotten off that freeway, whether it was a stranger or someone who knew her. It just seemed like it was easily accessible. And the search ramps up. So, but then a bizarre letter surfaces in Dina's things, um, describing how on Thursday of that week, so she goes missing late Saturday night. Um, and this letter describes how on Thursday, 16-year-old Dina had told her boyfriend, Michael, that she was pregnant. Mm. Uh-oh. So Tulsa County Sheriff's investigators track Michael down. Like, regardless of that I- information, you're always going to talk to the boyfriend. Yeah. Um, and he's like, I had been, I was out this that evening with friends. Like, I went to go talk to her in the parking lot, and she wasn't there. So, like, I went out with my guys. Yada yada. Does he drive a red pickup? Um, I did not. I oh, did not. See okay, that. it's it's possible, and I just didn't see it. But um, so it doesn't day- matter if it's not in there. <laughs> so days pass, and eventually the police tell Dina's parents they're like, "Listen, initially this was a search and rescue, but now like this is body recovery because uh-huh. like, if Dina yeah. was still alive, she would have reached out to someone by now." Unless she was kidnapped. Unless she was kidnapped. Taken. Right. So authorities are like stuck on the timing of Dina telling Michael she was pregnant. They're like, that's right. It feels like what a huge coincidence if it had nothing to do with what happened. Right. Like not even three days later. Right. Right. So um, they go back to Michael and they're like, we'd like you to take a polygraph. He takes, which I mean, to be fair, Polygraph tests are not admissible in court. They are like stress indicators. They're not, they're not, there's a reason that they're not reliable. But also back then it was this like, like, I remember thinking that they were like the end all be all, like it can really tell if you're lying. Like back then it was not, not as known now by the average person. Right. And it was the, and it's also still probably the closest thing we have to an actual lie detector. Right. So he takes two, he fails both of them, which to play like devil's advocate, I would also be indicating high levels right. of stress. Right. If my friend was missing. And pregnant. And, and pregnant. you were what, 16 or 17? And like, he's, he's 18. And oh. also, but like, and if they were looking but at like me as young. a suspect, and yeah. I, I would still be stressed. Yeah. Yeah. So the police draw up a triangular search grid marking the last three places Michael was seen on the night that Dina disappeared. The parking lot when he was getting off of his shift at the grocery store, the bowling alley that he went with his friends, and then his house where he lived. So a few days later in a remote area in West Tulsa that was like a well-known lover's lane, investigators find Dina's body. Mm. she was badly beaten and that combined with nearly a week of decomposition and exposure to the elements meant that the medical examiner couldn't determine like how she Mm. but but the but the examiner was able to confirm one thing 
Dina Dean was not pregnant. What? So a few of her high school friends what? say, I know, right? A few of her friends say it was a, it was a, you know, a twisted joke. It was a way for Dina to get Michael's attention because like he had been ignoring her. And those same friends also said that they had gone to Dina and they were like, Hey, Michael is really upset about this. You need to tell him that you're not pregnant. Oh my gosh. And suppose like, how can you think like, Oh, I'm going to like tell my, my teenage boyfriend that I'm pregnant but it's going to be a joke. And so when I tell him that I'm not really pregnant, he's going to think it's funny. Like how, where does that thought process come from? To me, it screams like, give me attention rather right. than like, this is hilarious. Yeah. Cause um, it's like, he not thought through. No, like she didn't no. think it through. It was like, it wasn't like, I want to play a joke on him. It's like, I got to do whatever it takes for him to pay attention to me. Right. And the fact that they had been dating for only a month. Oh. Like, that to me was like, what is happening here? So, like, some of her friends were like, hey, Michael's really upset by this, which, like, makes sense. Like, he's gotten his 16-year-old girlfriend pregnant. Right. And he's 18, so he's an adult now. He's an adult now, or he's, like, a graduating senior or whatever. Yeah. Uh, And supposedly that's what Dina was going to tell him in that, in the parking lot conversation that she was supposed to Maybe she did tell him and he got mad. That, or maybe she didn't have a chance to tell him and he was mad. Like, yeah. so, so, but the original investigators, this is 1998, right? They didn't have enough forensics or really information to charge Michael with the murder. Like it was still possible that he was with his friends that night. Like he had receipts and witnesses um, of those locations where he was at. And so even though like it was really suspicious, there wasn't enough concrete information yeah. to work him with. Um, and there were other leads, right? Like they looked into to other leads. There was, she had like four siblings and her oldest brother was looked at, even though he was excluded, like there were other routes. Yeah police like did their due diligence um so but eventually dina's case goes cold and it stays that way for like 20 years and her family has a vigil like every year i can't remember if it was her birthday or the day she went missing um where like the same reporters like showed up you know for 20 because they like they want to know what happened to their daughter um so, but then, and this is the, this is like what the show is about. And also I think is the most badass thing ever. Um, the Tulsa cold case task force was formed the country's only known civilian cold case task force. What? How can I join? Well, seriously, it's civilian, but it's also not because it's made up of retired policemen, FBI mm. agents, DEA and ATF agents. And they don't need true crime podcast hosts. Hey, they probably need an online special education teacher. So you should. True. I can do that. And from what I've gathered, like they all volunteer their time too, which is amazing. So this incredible task force is, um, is created and they think the pregnancy hoax is the motive behind Dina's murder. Yeah. And that it will be the key to like solving the case. So they know that Michael got off work about 10 o'clock the night Dina disappeared, but now they know 
um, that someone else was there right before she went missing. A man named Robert, who is Michael's dad. Uh-oh. Right? So Why was the, he there? So, yeah, excellent question. So the task force also discovered that the next morning, only hours after the search for Dina was underway, right, Robert showed up at the store wanting to see his son's time card as well as a soft drink bottle Michael had thrown away next to his checkout stand the night before. Uh-oh. Which it's like, are you trying to, like, alter his alibi for, like, when he left the grocery store? Yeah. And also, why would you need to retrieve a soft bottle drink, like, other right. than to conceal DNA. his body? Right. Right. So or plant it. Right. Are you trying to frame him? Or, like, plant it somewhere else to show that he was somewhere else. Mm, yeah, that too. So, so Michael and his dad were and have been named persons of interest since that June, right? Um, but but they've both maintained their innocence. And yeah. th- to their credit, their fingerprints were not found at the scene. Were where, any fingerprints found, though? Um, they All they said was that their fingerprints weren't found. So maybe there Got weren't it. any. Like maybe everyone was wearing gloves. Yeah. Um, but when the task force goes, but there was DNA and like, I don't think they were able to like run it or analyze it in in 98. Um, so when the task force goes to rerun old evidence with new technology, they discover, like they run this DNA that was on the scene and they discover that the DNA that they have is not a match to Michael and it's not a match to Robert, but it is a familial match to them. Oh my God. Right? This There's story- more people. <laughs> so many twists and turns, dude. So police now believe, they're like, what the hell? Um, so police now believe that Robert's brother, so Michael's uncle, the boyfriend's uncle, uh-huh. a, man, a man named Steven is somehow involved. These are he, like the most basic names ever. These are very white boy names. Yeah. Middle America. And he has never been charged with with anything in connection to Dina's death. But deputies recently did serve um, a search warrant that, like, entitled them to take Stephen's DNA. And when they showed up to serve that warrant, authorities say that he made what officials call a spontaneous utterance. Which I think that means that, like, even if you haven't been Mirandized, it can still be yeah. used in the court of law. Okay. Um, yeah. Like, if you just, like, blurt something out, yeah. like, before someone even has the chance. Because they weren't arresting him. Like, right. They, they were just serving yeah. this warrant. So um, one of the investigators on the task force says, the uncle said something that we're really happy to hear. I'm not going to tell you what it was, but it was really good. <laughs> wonder what it could be yeah i wonder we've developed witnesses who have said that the uncle was complicit in the abduction and death of dina dean um the investigator said so larry dean dina's dad says i'm seeking justice and that's all i just want to hear that judge say guilty and then it's all gone the pressure the sadness everything is over with yes i'm still going to remember dina i'm still going to put the flowers out at the cemetery but that 20 years of fighting will be over with yeah so detectives told Crime Watch Daily in 2018 that they were waiting on a few key tests to come back, but that they believed an arrest or several arrests were near. 
And as far as I can tell, like I watched the show, I read all these articles, I searched it. Um, it seems like they were, they were, or are super, super close. Um, but it's 2020. And I mean, I know these things like take time, Yeah. Um, but it seems like they are fairly certain that Michael, Robert and Steven, like whether or not there is some, there is some question, it seems like, did Michael not know? And his dad was just taking care of the problem or was Michael in on it? Like, obviously he got his brother to like help him dump the body because his brother's DNA is on there. Um, but it's 2020 and no arrests have been made yet. But that is a story of Dina Dean. I highly recommend watching Killer Unknown because it's, it follows, it's like six or seven episodes. It follows the task force, um, like looking at this case as well as one other case that's unsolved in Tulsa. Um, and it's really, really good. So that is my story. That's crazy. I know I've heard, I've heard that story somewhere because I recognize the like, oh, she went to the supermarket to visit her friend and then waited and then disappeared. But I didn't remember like the rest of it. So I don't know where it was that I heard it. I, I have so many stories just in my mind. I know way too many true crime stories. And just the fact that like she probably was murdered because they thought she was pregnant. Right. And, and then was she wasn't. Oh my gosh. I wonder how bad they feel after hearing that. Like, I mean, obviously, hopefully they feel bad anyways, but like they justified it to themselves that yeah. they were helping Michael. And then if they find out that like it was a lie, then their justification is just completely blown. Yeah. And I was trying to think, I was like 98. Okay. Like teenage pregnancy is always like, there's a stigma to it, but, but it wasn't yeah. like the sixties. Yeah. Like and I feel like that was the last decade where it was still pretty severely stigmatized for the and last decade. It, it's interesting. The part I really didn't go into that I recommend watching the show for is like the dad is cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. Like he's been married six times. Like he is Looney Tunes. Um, So that's like the interesting part where I'm like, this wasn't just a dad protecting his son. Like it's a crazy guy, (laughs) the crazy guy protecting his son. Yeah. Um, So anyway, very interesting killer unknown some quarantine binge material um but that is my story emily tell me one now all right so i'm gonna do one and i'm not gonna tell you what it is first i'm gonna give you guys a little 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 sneak peek first so um i'm not gonna tell you my sources yet either because it kind of gives away okay (laughs) so on april 3rd 1996 FBI agents surround a small cabin in the secluded woods outside of Lincoln, Montana. Oh, I know this. (laughs) One agent knocked on the door, and when the occupant stepped outside, the rest of the agents swarmed and arrested the man. Any guesses on who the man was? It's the Unabomber. It's the Unabomber. (laughs) Mr. Ted Kaczynski himself. The one, the only. The Unabomber. So I got all this information from Wikipedia the Unabomber series on Netflix and an episode of Family Secrets. Thanks, oh my gosh. I was just gonna say, did you listen to that yeah. one? That is an incredible episode. I think it's my favorite so far. So the episode is called What's Wrong with Teddy? Mm-hmm. And it's really good. If you've never listened to Family Secrets, 
I highly suggest you listen to that episode. It's very different from the rest of the episodes, but it's still really good. Like really the rest great. of the episodes usually keep you on your toes for a little bit to figure out what the family secret is. But that one is very much like the secret is that my brother is the, the Unabomber. Unabomber. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So who is the Unabomber, you ask? <laughs> Well, between 1978 and 1995, Ted Kaczynski, the Unabomber, killed three people and injured 23 people by mailing or hand-delivering 16 bombs across the country. He is also the subject of the longest and most expensive FBI investigation, which is so crazy. I, like, had tiny bits and pieces of knowledge of, like, kind of who the Unabomber was, yeah. But I always thought it was like Unibomber, like he was like the one Unibomber, yeah. but yeah. it's actually Unabomber. Yeah. Um, and I'll, if you don't know why, I'll tell you guys in a minute. Um, but I didn't know that it had lasted so long, like almost 20 years this went on. I didn't realize that either. And this is also like, it's, it's before our time that right. it all yeah. happened. Yeah. We were like five when he was arrested. Right. So it's like, we didn't live through it, but I feel like it was still like talked about and stuff. Right. But yeah. So Ted was born on May 22nd, 1942 in Chicago. When he was nine months old, he was admitted to the, the hospital with severe allergic reaction. He had like, his whole body was covered in hives. So they admitted him to the hospital. There you go. I yeah. wonder what that's like. Are you going to become the next Unabomber? Because I sure hope not. I Nobody's hope so. admitted me to the hospital yet. So right. well, fingers crossed. Fingers crossed. Um, but when he was in the hospital, his parents were only allowed to visit him during like official hospital visiting hours which was only twice a week for like a couple hours. So like they didn't see their infant son for like days. And, and that, that'll mess up a baby's sense of like security and attachment. Right. And so that's what they said is that they think that when like they weren't there, like he wasn't getting like socialization, like no one was paying attention to him. Like they'd come in and like feed him or like check on him, change his diaper or whatever. But like that was it. And so when yeah. he came home from that, Ted's mom said that he was not the same person that like the same baby when they brought him in, like he was like super like isolating himself, like almost emotionless. He wouldn't really like make eye contact or want to like play, which is yeah. like unusual for normal baby behavior. But she also said that he was a very happy baby before this. Yeah. So it's extra unusual. Um, they, um, sorry, real quick. In like what everything I'm learning about like early childhood development for work, mm -hmm. they referenced this study about like back in the day where there used to be like instant like orphanages in the States. Yeah. They talked about like these babies that were well fed, like they were, you know, they had safe, clean places to sleep. Like they had all of their needs met except like the Love. emotional social connection yeah. and how those babies became like listless and like yeah. didn't respond to anything. And that's when psychologists and psychiatrists were like, oh, so you don't just need to like meet the Maslow's hierarchy, like right. um, that, like not having that affection and attachment, like has like, yeah. ser serious consequences right. for like human development. Right. Anyway. Which I think on that bottom 
part of Maslow's hierarchy. Now it's like affection or love or whatever. I, I feel like that's on there now. I feel like I remember that from taking teaching classes. Yeah. Um, but so that incident and another incident, I really feel like are the two triggers that like made Ted be who he was, that if it weren't for these two things happening in his life, he wouldn't have become the Unabomber. Yeah. And I'll tell you guys about the other incident in a little bit, but first, um, back to when he was a baby. So after he came home from the hospital, his mom said it took him a few months to kind of ease back in and slowly become like, quote unquote, like normal. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in 1952, so 10 years Ten years later, um, Ted's brother David is born, and the family moves to a suburb. Um, and then, when Ted is in sixth grade, he takes an IQ test, and he scores at 167. Do you know what the average is? I do not. I had to look it up. The average is between 85 and 115. Oh, wow. Okay. So he's like 40 points above yeah. average. He's like super smart. So yeah. they're like. Okay, so you can skip a couple of grades if you want. You skip all the grades. Right. So he's pushed ahead in school. Um, and before he's pushed ahead, he felt like he really fit in with his classmates. He had friends. But now he's younger and he's smaller than his peers and he gets picked on a lot, um, probably because a lot of those kids are like, why is this baby in our class? Like, he's so smart. It made them feel insecure. Sure. Um, so he just didn't fit in anymore. Um, and most people reported, like most of his peers said that he was a little bit antisocial and preferred to be alone. Um, one high school classmate described him as a walking brain, which I oh. thought was hilarious, a hilarious <laughs> description. Um, and Ted's mom also even thought about having him assessed for autism. Um, but when she met the doctor who was going to be doing the testing, she said she didn't like how cold he was. So they just like mm-hmm. left. Um, but I think a lot of that antisocial behavior was just from like, he didn't fit in anymore. He like, wasn't the same age as his peers. And that's like such a huge thing. Like they, like now, like how we were talking about how we know that love and affection is such a huge thing for babies. Like, the social aspect of school is almost just as important as. And it's hard enough. It's hard enough, even when your peers are the same age. Right. Like I can't imagine. Then being younger. younger. Yeah. Yeah. So when, um, when David Ted's younger brother is, I don't know how old he says he is, but I imagine he's like 10, um, asks his mom, what's wrong with Teddy? Um, and that's where they get the title of the family secrets episode. Um, and so his mom just tells him like, nothing's wrong with him. He just like is different than other people. But in the same conversation, she tells David something that he says that he remembers forever. She tells him, don't ever abandon Ted. That is what he fears the most. Mm. And that just breaks my heart because like, that is what he fears the most because he felt like he was abandoned when he was a baby. And it's something that was like ingrained in him. Like I'm sure that he couldn't like as an adult or even as a teenager be like, yeah, I don't want to be abandoned because I was abandoned once as a child. And I remember it. Like it's just something that was so learned and ingrained in him. 
Yeah. Um, so then at age 16, Ted goes off to Harvard on a scholarship, which is nuts. Like he's so oh my young. God, I forgot this part. This kid just gets effed at every turn. Right. He yeah. never stood a chance. Yeah, no, so he really did. This is the other thing that I think was the, the other part of the two things that if hadn't happened to him, he wouldn't have become the Unabomber. Yeah. So during his sophomore year, he enrolls in this psychological study. Um, and he was told, like him and all the other participants were told that they were going to be observed discussing philosophy with their peers. Um, so they were told to write an essay describing their beliefs and aspirations, just kind of being vulnerable about themselves. Um, but the study was actually about how like really intellectual men are affected by trauma, um, which they thought would be a good idea to inflict that trauma on them so that they could study that, which like later. That's so unethical. Like now never be allowed because that's so unethical. Well, even then, like it was against the, the Nuremberg code of like, what things you are and aren't allowed to do to other humans. Like right. they had and to like search. Right. Yeah. They had to write this code after World War II because all of these doctors were thinking that it was okay to perform all these tests on the Jews. And so they had to write these things of like, no, this is not okay to do. And in that was like you can't lie to like your participants. You have to tell them what they're gonna do. You can't inflict trauma or harm on them and so it's crazy that this was happening like in the 60s at harvard yeah so what this whole thing was was once a week ted would go in and a guy would just emotionally verbally mentally abuse him 16 16 he's he's not even like an average college age his mom had to sign the form to let him participate in this because he wasn't an adult and she thought when when she read it because she didn't read the thing that said like we're going to be inflicting trauma on your son she read it as like oh it's a psychological study about how kids like socialize and he'll get socialization like participating in these philosophical discussions so mom is like all for it but they didn't know. And so this went on for three years. He was in this once a week for three years, he would show up and be verbally and emotionally abused by this man who had read that essay about him describing like his beliefs and aspirations. So he would use those things like against him. Um, So I would say that this study definitely showed the effects of trauma inflicted on intellectual men and it's that they grow up to be violent. <laughs> <laughs> Probably yeah. just this one. I don't know who else was in that. Maybe the Zodiac yeah. Killer was in that too. Maybe this is where it all started. Yeah. It, it's also like how... It just seems like such a hard thing to... Um, like with that test group, like how how many people could you possibly test like and inflict trauma on to get like any kind of baseline? That just feels like a very right. hard thing to prove. Anyway, right. going. Yeah. It's yeah. Fraught with problems, but I know. So when asked like, cause he didn't really tell anybody in his family, like what it actually was. And when they found out what it was, they were like, why didn't you just quit? Yeah. Like, it was like, I wanted to prove that they couldn't break me. 
Yeah. Like I wanted to prove that I could beat their tests. Yeah. And it's like, sorry, dude, I don't think you beat it. I think the test beat you. Yeah. So and he was probably like very used to sorry, it sounds like we're being very apologetic for the Unabomber. Like uh so I'm not right. excusing yeah. I'm not excusing what he did, mm-hmm. but I am like empathizing with what he went through. Right. Um, it, it shouldn't lead you to murder people, but like it it sounds like he probably spent a lot of years always trying to prove that like he belonged and yeah. then like culminated in this. Right. And like, yeah, definitely I'm we're definitely not like approving of what he did because the next thing I'm gonna talk about is all the horrible things he did Real but bad. but it's like I always just had you know you have one idea in your mind of what well that what these people are like without mm-hmm. knowing their background and knowing that kind of just puts it in per- to perspective it doesn't excuse it or anything right but knowing that like okay he had years and years of suffering just kind of brings to light you know, it make, makes him human, you know, yeah. like, yeah. I don't know. Yeah. This you can, has got me pensive. You can empathize without condoning like, right. or, or excusing. Like, I think that's possible. Yeah. Yeah. So after Harvard, Ted goes to the University of Michigan to get his master's and his doctorate in mathematics. Wow. And in 1967, he gets a job at Berkeley as an assistant professor. And he's only there for two years um, when he quits unexpectedly um, and then moves back in with his parents for a couple years. And in 1971 is when he moves to a cabin in the woods outside of Lincoln, Montana. Okay. This tiny cabin, I forget the dimensions, but it's something like eight feet by 10 feet. It's like real small. It's just a tiny little shack. There's no electricity, no running water. He wanted to become completely self-sufficient. He just wanted to like be out there and not have contact with any people or anything and just like live off the land. Um, But he eventually realized that that wasn't going to happen because all of the woods around him were being cut down for housing developments. Mm. And so he, this kind of triggers his hit, like he already was really against like technology and all of the rapid, rapid like improvements that society was making with technology. But this just kind of like added fuel to his fire and realized that like, okay, like he needed to like make society aware of the downfalls of technology. So this is when he starts making bombs and sending them. So the first bomb was sent on May 25th, 1978. And it was sent to Northwestern University in Illinois. And the victim was Terry Marker. He was a university police officer and his injuries were just some minor cuts and burns. So he luckily wasn't killed, had very minor injuries, but obviously still opened a package that had a bomb in it. Um, And then the next year, again in May, a lot of these happened in May, which is like really bizarre to me. Wait, wait. He was born in May. Oh my gosh. That's interesting. Hmm. A psychologist needs to figure this out. Yeah, for so, real. So I'm not that person. Neither. So May 9th of the next year, 79, he sends a bomb again to Northwestern University. This time, um, John Harris, a graduate student, opens it. But again, he only suffers minor cuts and burns. And 
Northwestern isn't where he went, right? No, he didn't go there, but it's, I think it's in Chicago or right outside of Chicago. So I think he grew up near it and has like, his focuses are on like anti-technology and like developments in that area and like anti-educational systems because they are the ones really who are doing like the research and using that technology that he's against. So like he has this vendetta against like these educational institutions. Yeah. Um, But the next bomb actually was exploded on American Airlines flight 444 going from Chicago to DC. Um, And so he's called the Unabomber because this is when they... Um, figured out that all three of those bombs were connected. Mm. Um, And so they called him Unabomber because it was the university and airline bomber. So the UN is university. Yeah, the A is airline and then bomber. I know, I didn't know that either. And I was like, I feel like they just kind of, they don't tell us that information. And I feel like it's really important. The more you know. Yeah. So there were 12 passengers that were affected, um, but the only thing they suffered was non-lethal smoke inhalation. So they were super lucky that like nothing crazy happened. Right. Um, And then June 10th, 1980, um, he sent a bomb to the president of United Airlines. Um, His name is Percy Wood. Did you just take a screenshot? Maybe for the gram later. (laughs) (laughs) I just hear the like camera shutter sound. I was like, like, oh, shit, she's going to hear that. Sorry. Oops. My face was cute. Well, I can only see, like, from here up, so. I know. I, like, can't see. So I'm, like, so close to the computer trying to read my thing. Um, I could just, like, zoom in, but that's too much work. He's fine. Uh, So he sent it to the airline president. Yes, his name was Percy Wood, and he suffered severe cuts and burns over most of his body and face. Okay. So, so far, this is the most, like, severe injuries to have happened. Yeah. Um, he's still lucky he didn't die, but definitely, he's definitely, um, I don't want to say, um, well, oh, I was going to say the Unabomber is getting more sophisticated. That's the Oh, word. he's escalating. I was going to say he's been upgrading his bombs, <laughs> but I knew that that wasn't what I wanted to say. It's not wrong, but it sounds kind of complimentary. Right, yeah, he's been upgraded. Um, And so the next bomb is the next year, 1981, October 8th. He sends a bomb to the University of Utah, but it was diffused before anybody could, like, open it. So they must have, like, realized that the package was a bomb and, like, had it diffused before it went off. Okay. Um, And then the next year, again in May, May 5th, 1982, he sends a bomb to Vanderbilt University, which is in Tennessee, um, and he sends it to one of the like guys that are high up in universities, but his secretary ends up opening it. Yikes. So Janet Smith um, is the secretary. Um, she has severe burns to her hands and shrapnel wounds to her body. Obviously didn't die. She's good, just some injuries. Um, and then this same year, this is the, oh no, it's not. I was going to, I thought this was the first time that he sends two in a year, but in 79, he sent two, but this is the first time that they're so close together. 
Hmm. So this is July 2nd. The last one was May 5th. So it's only like two months. Mm -hmm. Um, So July 2nd, 1982, he sends a bomb to Berkeley, um, which is where he used to work. Right. And I forgot to look up how to pronounce this guy's name. Um, But he's an engineering professor. Um, I think you would say it Diogenes Angelakos. Okay. I'm probably totally butchering it. And I'm so sorry. I really wanted to pronounce his name right. Um, so he's an engineering professor and he has severe burns and shrapnel wounds to his face and hands. Um, if you know the correct pronunciation, please let me know and I will fix it on the next episode. <laughs> um, and then May 15th, 1985. So he takes like a three-year break, which is super strange. Um, he sends another one to Berkeley. Um, and this time a graduate student, John Hauser, opens it and they interview him. So he doesn't die, but they interview him on the Netflix series. Um, and he kind of retells it. And it's super interesting to hear it from like his perspective, because he's not like, you can tell that he doesn't hold like anger and resentment towards Ted. He like tells the story and just has a really positive outlook on life. So watch the Netflix episode. Um, but he loses um, four fingers and a artery in his right arm is severed and he has partial loss of vision in, in his left eye. So, so far, this is like the most severe um, injuries. So far, it's been like burns and cuts, but now people are losing digits. Um, <laughs> I was going to say limbs. Um <laughs> This drink is strong, okay? That's so funny, but so far, and this is severe because people are losing <laughs> digits. <laughs> They're losing digits, guys. Oh, okay, that was really good. Anyway, I'm, yes, continue. Moving on. So Moving a month later, June 13th, 1985, he sends a bomb to the Boeing company in Auburn, Washington, um, and it's diffused. So nobody gets hurt. Um, and that's, that's the last bomb that's diffused. So the rest of them are going to go off. Sorry for the spoilers. <laughs> I'm really getting you. So for some reason, yeah. Losing digits here, guys. Losing digits. That's the last one that's going to get diffused. <laughs> the rest of them do the damn off. thing. <laughs> this drink is strong let me just go ahead and finish this real quick i feel good from that from from mine so yeah Yeah. okay november 15th 1985 he sends a bomb to the university of michigan which is where he went for his master's and his doctorate so two guys are there opening opening this package james v mcconnell who's a psychology professor and nick Nicholas, or probably just Nicholas, but spelled cool. Um, Suino is a research assistant. Um, and James McConnell, the professor, has temporary hearing loss. And Nicholas has burns and shrapnel wounds, but both are not severe. Um, so that was 85. So a couple months, or the next month, December 11th, 1985. Um, he sends another bomb to Sacramento to um, a computer store owner, Hugh Scruton, and he ends up dying. So this is the first person who dies because of his bombs. Um, and 
this is the first person not really connected to like air travel or a university. He sends it to this computer store owner, um, which is like where he kind of starts to shift from it being just like universities to now he's really specifically targeting specific people who he thinks are responsible for this like technology boom that's happening. So the next bomb is a couple years later, February 20th, 1987. Um, he sends a bomb to Salt Lake City to um, another computer store owner, Gary Wright. Um, and he has severe nerve damage to his left arm. Um, and Gary and Ted's brother, David, end up actually becoming really good friends. Um, this is my favorite part yeah. of the whole Yeah. And they talk about it on um, the podcast, Family Secrets. And it's just so cool to hear them like talk about it. Um, and I'll, I'll circle back to that at the end because David plays a huge role towards the end of this story. Um, and just talk about how, yeah, never mind. Forget that I started saying this and remember it in a little <laughs> bit. Okay, so now, June 22nd, 1993. We're both born. We're in the world. We're and there. We're there. Take place. And um, he sends a bomb to Charles Epstein, who is a geneticist. And he lives in Tiburon, or Tiburon California. Um, and he has severe damage to both eardrums with partial hearing loss. And he loses three fingers. So, again, losing the digits. And now... They're getting lost. Yeah. And now, two days later, June 24th, 1993, he sends a bomb to Yale, um, which, if you don't know, is in Connecticut. Um, and he sends a bomb to the computer science professor, David Galertner, which I think is a great name, Galertner. And he has severe burns and shrapnel wounds, damage to his right eye, and loss of his right hand. So he loses more than some digits. He uses, loses the whole hand. And then the next year, December 10th, 1994, he sends a bomb to North Caldwell, New Jersey. Um, he sends it to an advertising executive, Thomas J. Mosser, who ends up dying after opening the package. And then... Um, in 1995, April 24th, um, he sends another bomb to Sacramento to Gilbert Brent Murray, who's a timber industry lobbyist, and he also dies after opening the package. So that marks the end of Ted's bombing spree that lasted almost okay. 20 years. So after the last bomb in 1995, he mails his his essay that's titled Industrial Society and Its Future, he mails it to the media. It's a 35,000 word essay. And he tells them that he'll stop bombing if they publish it. Um, and a lot of, takes a lot of like hemming and hawing for the FBI to review it, for some like media sources to review it. Um, the FBI eventually says like, you probably shouldn't like, put it out there because like we don't want to give him what he wants but also like they don't want him to keep bombing so the Washington Post ends up deciding that they're going to print it so they print it September 19th of 1995 um, and their ultimate goal is hoping that somebody recognizes the writing style because it's very 
distinct because it's obviously written by a crazy person. Yeah. And somebody does recognize it. So Linda Kaczynski, David's wife, David is Ted's brother, um, had been telling him for a few years that Ted needs help. So Linda has Mm -hmm. actually never met Ted because when David wrote to to Ted saying, I found the woman I want to marry, you should be happy for me. Um, Ted writes back and says, like, I can't be happy for you. She obviously, like, doesn't love you, and she's going to ruin your life, and I don't want to be your brother anymore. Please don't ever contact me again, which is, like, so heartbreaking. And, like, in that moment hearing David, like, describe that, like, you have to, like, being an outsider is, like, where you're, like, oh, it's so clear that, like, something's wrong with Ted. Like, he needs help. No reasonable person would just, like, say that without ever having met anybody or anything like that but being like Ted's brother and being so close to him I can see how you wouldn't see that so there's there's like people that I grew up with that weren't like my family but that like I grew up with Mm -hmm. where like something is something happens or they're diagnosed with something or whatever and I look back now and like I'm like well of course but when you're so close to it yeah you can't see it yeah yeah it's so crazy. Um, and so like Linda ends up like reading a lot of the letters, like a few years after like they get married and it's been like time, like David doesn't let her read them when they first come in because he says they're like so nasty about Linda. But honestly, like when they interview her in the Netflix documentary, she sounds like the most mature person on the entire planet. Like, that she could have read that letter, like, the day it was mailed, and she would be able to read it as, like, an objective yeah. person. But she, she like, tells David, like, he needs help. And then um, for a long time, like, they actually had never even heard of the Unabomber. So it wasn't until, like, the last maybe two or three bombs that they actually even, like, knew that there was a person in the world who was sending bombs to people. Mm-hmm. Um so they didn't even have a chance to like figure out that it was Ted until the very end. Um, and there were, there were like a few things that Ted had sent to like have like newspapers publish it and Linda would read them. And she was like, this kind of sounds like the way that Ted talks. So she had like Ted talks. Ted talks. <laughs> um, so she had kind of been saying for a while, like, hey, I think your brother might be the Unabomber. And he was like, eh, whatever. Like, you don't know. Like, you've never met him or whatever. But then once the manifesto is published, she reads it and she says, David, your brother is the Unabomber. You need to read this right now. And he's like, no, there's no way. Like, Ted wouldn't do that. But he reads it and he just knows that, like, they have to do something. There are, like, certain phrases that Ted uses in both letters that they've received and in the manifesto that are just, like, too too similar to like overlook um and david in both the show and the podcast describes like their dilemma of like okay either like we don't do anything and more people die or we turn him in and he gets the death penalty and my brother's blood is on my hands Mm, and so he goes through this huge like either way someone's blood is going to be on like be on their hands like quote unquote because of an action that they did or don't do and so they end up deciding like well I hope that you can't hear the train in this but our train the train is passing um 
deciding, well, like we have a lot of evidence that Ted is like mentally unstable. So hopefully if we turn him in, we can get him life instead of the death sentence. Um, And so they end up going to the FBI who were getting thousands of calls a day since the manifesto was published. Um, But just happens the person that they send it to happens to like decide to take a look at the letters who realizes that they're too similar. There it is. There's Can you hear it? Oh my gosh. There's one train conductor who is so loud when he honks and <laughs> we're going to pause from Ted so that I can tell you a story about the theory is that his ex-wife lives on our street and she won the house in the divorce. And so he honks really loud every time he comes through because he just have, wants Have to you made this up or is this a rumor you've heard? No, it's a rumor we've heard. <laughs> that's yeah. hilarious. It's a rumor. I'm sure it's not real, but it's hilarious. That's- I like to think that that's what's happening and not just that the train conductor is rude. Um, right. Sure. Which like they have to honk at every like street that they cross. And we're right, like right, right in the right. middle of two. Um, but they don't have to be that rude. Like there are some train conductors who like barely honk. Anyways. You should lodge a complaint with the train people. I don't even know who the train people are, <laughs> honestly. So that was your palate cleanser from the Unabomber. Mm-hmm. So David and Linda Kaczynski decide to send their letters to the FBI. And an FBI profiler named James R. Fitzgerald, he reads through them and he's got like a ton of training in like linguistic studies and writing analysis and all that fun stuff. Um, He reads through them and decides that almost certainly the author of the letters that the Kaczynskis have provided and the manifesto are written by the same person. Um, So they decide that they're gonna come up with a search warrant and an arrest warrant for Ted um, because they think that they're going to be able to find even more evidence in his cabin, which we know from my little teaser at the beginning, they did. So they arrested him um, in April of 1996, April 3rd. And after they arrest him, they end up finding 40,000 pages of handwritten journal entries which is nuts. I don't even know how to picture 40,000 pages. Yeah. Like, yeah. what are the, like, the printer paper things? Is that, like, 50 sheets or, like, 100 sheets or something? Oh, a ream? Yeah. Um, or is well, it 500? I want, to I want to say it's, like, somewhere between, like, three and five, but still, okay. like, that's... So, yeah, yeah that's so like, if that's five, if a ream of paper is 500, two yeah. reams of paper is 1,000. So 40 two reams of paper 80 reams of paper no it would be if if it's 500 it would be uh you know what let's not try and do math on our podcast it's a lot of paper tipsy math somebody tell us how many reams of paper forty thousand pages are A a lot so a lot of these handwritten journal entries are about making bombs the different like formulas that he's going to use about bombs And he also writes a lot of things, especially things that are about the bombs that have already happened in this weird numerical code. So it just looks like pages of numbers, like how 
scary would that be if you found like 40,000 pages of just numbers? It's like that movie with Nicolas Cage. I don't know. There's a movie, there's a movie with Nicolas Cage where he is like getting these weird visions of numbers and they like mean something and he has to like sounds thrilling. Save the world. <laughs> anyway. He has to steal the declaration of independence. And he has to steal the declaration of independence. Anyways, they also find a live bomb that's been like all prepared to ship and explode on somebody like opening it. They find that under his bed. So they're like, they've like been in there for hours, like searching things. And then they find this live bomb and they're like, oh crap, we have been in a room for hours with a live bomb that could have exploded like any second. Yeah. So in April, 1996, so it's been a year since Ted was arrested, a grand jury indicts Ted on 10 counts of illegally transporting, mailing, and using bombs, as well as three counts of murder. And at first, Ted's defense lawyers want to use an insanity plea because they have him tested by three different psychologists, and they all determine that he has some form of schizophrenia. So some of them say that he has, like, schizoaffective disorder. Some say he has, like, other kinds of schizophrenia. I didn't write it down. Um... But Ted refuses to let them use that defense. He's like, I'm not crazy. You cannot use that. Like, I knew what I was doing. Um, and he ends up firing some of the defense lawyers who are like, no, I'm I'm not going to not use it. Who are basically like, no, you're insane. I'm going to use that plea. Um, and he finally has one lawyer on his team who will agree to not using that. Um, but prosecutors seek the death penalty and Ted decides to plead guilty. Um, he's not pleading guilty by reason of insanity though. He's just, he's, he's pleading guilty by reason of like beliefs that anti-technology is a thing. Um, which was too confusing to me to even remember. Um, (laughs) the important part is that he ends up being sentenced to eight counts of life without the possibility of parole. So he is never getting out. Um, And his cabin and all the items in the cabin that weren't about bombs or pieces of bombs or like parts of bombs were auctioned off and all the money went towards the $15 million of restitution that is owed to the victims. Wow. And that is the Unabomber. Very well told. Yeah. Oh, and I was going to talk about how um, Gary and David end up becoming really good friends because David... Um, when he ends up turning Ted in, has this, like, through all of it, feels super guilty about having to turn his brother in, and just, like, also just, like, feels really sympathetic for all the victims, because he feels, like, you know, slightly responsible of, like, he was my brother, I should have seen it, or whatever, and so he ends up reaching out to some of the victims, just, you know, saying, like, I know you probably don't want to hear from me, but, like, I'm Ted's brother, and, like, I'd love to, like, be able to do whatever you need me to do to, like, help you or whatever, and Gary ends up, like, writing back, and they end up being really close, and I think it's David that says, like, I can count all of my friends on one hand, and Gary is one of them, and it's so cool how, like, a lifelong, like, best friend is formed through this giant tragedy yeah that's an amazing amazing story yeah. um and like 
exactly the kind of hopeful note we want to we want to land yeah well done seriously that that is a beast of a story to tackle so good job yeah thank you um now we transition to the part of our show where we detox from our drinks as well as the horror we've just discussed yeah so to really make it light emily yeah um, i have a question if if you're prepared to answer it i don't know if i'm prepared to answer it but i'll try my best fantastic um so in a future where you get to go to a movie theater again what um what is your go-to movie theater snack that you buy at concession that's a good one my go-to one that i buy at concessions is popcorn because they Mm -hmm. never have candy that i like um i like really tiny candy pieces that that will sustain through the entire movie so I don't want to buy like a candy bar or like one of those trays of like three Reese's or any of that crap that I'll eat in like two bites I want little pieces like like um like the sweet and something or others uh sweet tarts Sweet tarts, Sweet tarts make these tiny little little ball things that come in like a bag. I like those because they last a while. They like ruin the roof of my mouth, but they last forever because <laughs> they're small. I like like red hots. I can do milk duds because they last a long time in your mouth. Sure. I really love frozen milk duds. Yeah, um, those are good. And now I'm on a tangent. So Sarah, what is your <laughs> go-to movie theater snack? Um, I'm a sucker. I mean, for like a giant thing of popcorn and I'm, I'm a sucker for like the movie theaters that have, like you get the thing of popcorn and then you go off to the side and there's all those like different toppings. Yeah. The the butter, the like machine that you just push the button and all the liquid butter comes out. Oh, that sounds so good. That's the dream dream right there. And like the different types of like salts and and whatnot. When Um, I Yeah. I'm a... No, go ahead. ahead. I didn't mean to interrupt you. I was going to say, when no, I was in... I'm a for like... <laughs> go, recording. go, you! <laughs> um, I'm a sucker for like a big Diet Coke and uh, popcorn. Just like, because when you don't get it and then you watch the previews and then they do the thing about the concession stand, that's all Yeah, with the, the roller coaster on the thing. The I think it's yep. AMCs have the like thousand choice coke um soda things i don't know words but i was gonna say that in high school i used to me and my friend caitlin who for sure doesn't listen to this podcast because i'm sure she doesn't like crime um actually she probably does because this story i'm about to tell includes us watching crime shows so caitlin if you're listening thanks for showing me this trick we used to make popcorn and then we'd put brown sugar on top of the popcorn. It sounds weird, but I dare you to try it. So we'd make that, and then we'd watch, like, Law & Order SVU marathons. I have both of those things in my pantry, so I'm definitely going to try it that tomorrow. Right now. Okay, or, or tomorrow. Or tomorrow. Or t- whatever. All right. I no. don't. I don't have popcorn. Well, you got to popcorn. I'll just go eat some brown sugar. It's the same, right? right? Yeah, your name. I don't know. I mean, like corn is gluten-free. Sure. So, so I assume it. that if they don't put wheat in the butter that they put on the popcorn, <laughs> which honestly, 
they put wheat in so many things. Yeah. Soy sauce. Soy sauce yeah. is not gluten-free. Ugh. You have to buy yeah. gluten-free soy sauce. It's tough out there for the GF crowd. It really is. And last, so last night I made a HelloFresh meal, not sponsored. Um, I made a HelloFresh meal that had this like soy glaze on it. And I didn't even think about, think about it until I was like a few bites in and went, this has soy glaze on it. I hope it didn't have gluten in it. And then I woke up in the morning covered in hives and I bet it did have gluten in it. Yeah. Ugh. The worst. I know. Worst. So while you are all navigating your gluten allergies, don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to us on anywhere you'd find your podcasts. Spotify, Apple, Stitcher. Follow us on Instagram at Lightweight True Crime. And email us with questions or stories or gluten-free recipes. (laughs) Um, Or if you want to know what to buy at Trader Joe's that's gluten-free, because I'm a master at that now, our email address is lwtruecrime at gmail.com. Don't forget to check in on your elderly neighbors and the single moms in your neighborhood and stop licking doorknobs for the love of all the shit. darn it. Stop licking the freaking doorknobs. Good Lord. And wear a mask please for the love of all that's sacred thanks for listening love bye Bye. cheers 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 bye cheers bye We gotta do our 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 warm ups. Peter Piper plucked up. I felt bum. Do Newcastle, Latido.